Hi, this is a new episode of History and Politics, and we are with a uh, great guest, with Seth Kotler, who teaches at the Willamette University. He teaches history, and we are going to talk about history in the, in the age of Trump. Welcome, Seth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So the idea was that, that it seems like the, this is a, a very kind of particular time in, in the these Trump years are going to be a very unique in, in many ways because of the of the particular of the fake news that start to, to to appear and and the and the narrative that has been pushed in the in the last times over over what Trump is doing is is he right is he is he wrong and the lies of the administration and and on the other hand it seems like it's a moment where the interest of academia in, in American history, and particularly in the history of, of the conservative movement is growing. And, and there are several things happening. And, and at the same time, historians are reaching to, to, new, to new forms of, of trying to, to, to reach to a broader audience with, with things like Twitter historians, the threads on, on Twitter, and, and sometimes also uh, historians writing op-eds in, in, in large uh, journals or, or newspapers. So it is certainly an interesting time, although a complex for historians, I, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, Trump is such a disruptive figure. Um, most people who studied American politics or American history uh, found him to be someone who was quite a diversion from past politics, or at least so we thought. Um, and then when the institution of the Republican Party embraced him and when so many of the voters embraced him, it came as a surprise to a lot of people and raised question of what is it that we hadn't seen or hadn't understood uh, about the American population and American voters that put them in a position to vote for someone who engaged in one seemingly career-ending gaffe after another. Um, so, you know, in... Howard, there's a famous moment when Howard Dean, who was running for president as a Democrat, uh, got very excited because he won, I believe it was the Iowa caucus. Yeah. And he screamed uh, in such a way that sounded odd. It was, it was you know, not quite appropriate. And that act on his part basically submarined his entire political career. One moment of slightly inappropriate public behavior. Um, and those that seemed to be the general rules of how politics worked in America. And then Donald Trump, whether it be the Access Hollywood tape or the mocking of a disabled person or the mocking of the parents of a deceased war hero, you know, the, the innumerable things, the criticizing a federal judge, um, criticizing the FBI, um, being explicitly racist and things that he said that there were all these what we thought were guardrails of American politics that voters took seriously and cared about and which apparently they didn't. Um, 
And so trying to, it, it basically reoriented our understanding of what we thought American political culture, uh, what the mainstream of American political culture was, um, which then led us back to the past to figure out how did this happen? Where did this come from? Who are these voters? What does this tell us about the Republican Party um, and its and and what it stands for? Yeah, I I, I am aware that that in, in recent times have been a, a larger interest in trying to to make histories of conservatism of, of different strains of conservatism. There is a, a book of. Ayn Rand that had some, I think, goddess of the market, if I'm not wrong, that had some some relatively large coverage. I think the, the author was in, I don't remember if it was the Daily Show or or, or the other show, but that wasn't a Comedy Central interview. It was strange, but some yeah. some some other books have some, had some impact. Uh, and and I guess that that it's it's really a a very unique kind of perspective because here in Latin America uh, the, the generality the, the historians that that have studied United States are 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 generally more or less critical of of, of American foreign policy and have tended to be generally left wing and, and there are not that much historians of of, of the U, United States in 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 Latin America and, and generally the ones that are are much more focused on, on foreign policy than than in the intellectual tradition. I think there is one in in Mexico that, that has written about conservatism, but but beyond her I think there is there is no one. And and it's it's very funny because uh for years the, the presidential election overseas is is like a, a big deal. But the, this is the first time, like the, the professor that teached me, like uh, American history. At the university was interviewed by by the channels, by by the by the radio stations because people cannot understand simply what what was going on with Trump, and it was kind of a, of a unique moment that need to be understood in some way and. And and that led to to a great deal of 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 there. I think that there is a great mystery of what is going to happen. I mean, many still refer to that the Trump is unpredictable, and at the same time, uh, there have been a kind of a reaction. Uh, the the that is very strange. The kind of uh, uh, pseudo intellectualism of, of some uh, conservatives like like the like Dinesh Souza trying to to try to recycle his ideas and 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 his pardon of Dinesh Souza also the embracement of of the right of these conspiracies and has make a lot of of, of complex. Uh, um, avenues to 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 rethink the right in some of its relations. As you said, the 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 fact that still large parts of the conservative institutions still are are backing Trump, it's, it's it could make one think that it's there is a need to to see another time in a conservative history 
and and see where what are the roots of, of what is happening yeah i i think part what historians are responding to is a sense that the, it appeared as if there was a general bipartisan consensus on a set of basic ideas there was still a lot of disagreement between democrats and republicans but you know there was generally <clears throat> thought that both democrats and republicans for example believed in the role of the free press um, that both democrats and republicans believed that american intelligence and law enforcement agencies while they might make uh, mistakes and overstep in some cases but were fundamentally reality-based organizations that were operating in good faith to try to protect the interests of the American nation. Um, that's also sort of gone out the window. Um, with this latest episode with Ambassador McFall and the idea that Putin would want to bring McFall to Russia to question him as a criminal, the former ambassador to Russia, the idea that an American president wouldn't just immediately say, Oh, that's insane. Of course, we're not going to do that. The idea that they would say, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it is so far outside the boundary of what any past American uh, president would have said. Now, you know, there's a lot of criticisms to be made of American foreign policy, a lot of criticisms to be made of the American of the security state and the FBI and the CIA. Um, historically, it's Democrats who have been the ones and progressives who have been making those criticisms, and it's been Republicans who have been defenders of those institutions and those organizations. So to have Donald Trump, you know, be turning on the CIA and the FBI, you know, the same organizations that, for example, Ronald Reagan used <laughs> in the Iran-Contra scam, <laughs> And, you know, to do all kinds of nefarious, horrible things around Latin America and the world. The idea that the same Republican Party would now line up behind Trump and his attacks on those institutions is, um, it's such an about face. It's so stunning. And so the, the way that he was able to capture the base of this party to further things like, for example, tariffs. Republican Party has been the party of like radical free trade and, you know, Milton Friedman, you know, laissez-faire capitalism for since before Reagan. Um, and just on a dime, they just turned and now they all love steel tariffs. And it's like, how did this happen? How did you change your mind about that? Um, the Republicans are the ones who are always complaining that, you know, the Democrats are soft on Russia. You know, and now all of a sudden, Trump goes over and coos like a pussycat standing next to Vladimir Putin on the stage. Um, so the ways in which he, Trump just breaks the rules and they don't seem, the rules don't push back um, is the part that for historians makes us think, wow, we had thought that there was some integrity uh, to those norms and expectations of what the Republican party stood for. And it turns out maybe it was just captured by a cult of personality and the ideology and all of the talk of free trade, all of the talk of, you know, strong security, all of that was um, largely meaningless. Um, and, and his, his breaking of so many basic rules of American civics, 
like the role of the First Amendment or the, what the rule of law means, um, uh, the peaceful transfer of power, um, the idea that elections are sort of sacrosanct, um, those just, you know, not even question norms are now being questioned by him and Fox News is going along with it and so many of his supporters seem okay with it. Um, I think that's what makes a lot of historians just, I mean, as citizens, it makes many of us frightened and appalled uh, that so many of our fellow citizens would go along with it. But then as intellectuals and as historians, it raises a whole host of questions about, wow, how did, how did we perhaps not see this and how uh, open to this kind of leadership the Republican Party as an institution would be and also that base of 60-some million people who voted for Donald Trump, that they would not perceive that to be a deal-breaker, basically. Yes, and, and how... How do you see the, the, the Twitter historians trying to, to break the, the fake news? And, and, and a lot of, the, I saw a, a book presentation some, some, some days ago, and it was about a book on the, on the American radical right, but, but uh, of basically the, the, the neo-Nazi clan organizations of, of the, of the But it was of the 80s, but in the in the round of questions, basically, people were asking her, the author, about uh, what is the all right. And, and it's very complex because she was saying that she was trying to, to work with with um, with uh, historiographical sources and, and documents and archives and, and things like the all right that is kind of much more recent. It is much difficult to 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 work and, and beyond I guess oral history it's mm -hmm. and it's a very complex the issue of trying to to make a history very quick about about something that is currently happening right yeah well and that's that's where uh, you know historians are always very uh, careful to point out that history doesn't enable us to predict the future in any way. And in fact, frequently we understand what's happening far better 10 years later or 20 years later than we understand it when we're living in the midst of it. That's kind of what it means to have a sense of historical consciousness is that we're all just moving forward, but facing backwards. Um, and so historians don't necessarily don't have any special unique, uh, ability to understand what's happening in the present. Uh, I mean, the tools that we have at our disposal is to kind of offer a genealogical account of where some of the things that are happening today, what are the roots of those? Where does that come from? Um, what does it rhyme with in the American past? You know, what, what parts of the American past help us uh, kind of contextualize? So like the most obvious example is, you know, America first that phrase, America first. Donald Trump didn't invent that phrase. Um, that phrase uh, before Donald Trump was was used by Pat Buchanan, who was a very conservative Republican who gave uh, a very infamous speech at the 1992 Republican convention. Um, and Pat Buchanan was most famous for being kind of a culture warrior. He was the guy that was pushing this idea that American culture, by which he meant white kind of Christian culture, was under assault 
by feminists, under assault by immigrants, under assault by what he called political correctness, which other people would call, you know, a sense of uh, justice and fairness for, you know, oppressed people. Um, so Pat Buchanan gave this speech in 92 at the Republican convention. And I, re I remember watching it. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, these Republicans are dinosaurs, man. Can you believe they believe? How can they believe this crap? <laughs> This is like, this is so outrageous. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we know what uh, <laughs> what happened in 92, which is that an, an incumbent president, George H.W. Bush, was defeated by Bill Clinton. Um, and so in some ways, and Clinton was a moderate, he wasn't a progressive, but there was the sense that this America first uh, isolationist rhetoric on the part of Pat Buchanan was uh, silly, foolish, you know, a, a, a dinosaur. Um, and then Trump resuscitates it in 2016, and it's incredibly powerful and potent. Before Buchanan, America First was a slogan used by uh, Charles Lindbergh and the isolationists who resisted American uh, entry into World War II. Um, so that was, that was the, the, the first place where America First was used just those two words together as a political slogan. Um, a lot of those people involved with America First, not not all, there were some progressive isolationists, people who were pacifists, who were opposed to war out of principle, but a good number of those people who were opposed to the, our entry into World War II were people who were basically cool with Nazis. <laughs> they were people who looked at what was happening in Germany and they said, oh, well, you know, I'm sure the Jews have done some bad things. I mean, come on. Uh, why should we go fight to help protect, you know, those people? It's none of our business. Um, so again, the the ways in which that resonates with uh, how Trump is kind of perceiving what's happening around the world, this kind of ethno-nationalism, basically. It's a kind of ethno-nationalism uh, that is comfortable with other countries who are engaging in a kind of authoritarian politics rooted around uh, kind of ethnic identity and centering that as a definition of who, who, the, who the real citizens are. Sarah Palin used the phrase, the pro-America parts of America during her campaign um, in 2012. And so, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2008. Um, so, you know, that this, the ways in which what Trump is doing is both different and a departure, yet he's also tugging these strings, these threads in American political culture that have been around for a long time that have tended to be uh, kind of on the margins, on the edges of the Republican coalition. Um, the Republican coalition has kind of relied upon those kind of Christian, ethno-nationalist leaning types for votes, um, but it's always been clear that the Republican establishment find, or we thought it had been clear that they found such ways of being to be, you know, the kind of thing you have to do to get elected in Alabama or certain districts in Iowa with someone like Steve King, but it's not who the Republican Party uh, is when they come to Washington, D.C. It's just a small part of our of our coalition. Um, and with Trump, it just walked out of the margins and right onto center stage. And instead of the party 
rejecting that, trying to push back, trying to mold Trump, trying to, you know, to tell him to curb some of this. They've just completely rolled over and capitulated to it. It's I, I think of it like almost like a hostile takeover. Um, that the Trump has staged a hostile takeover of the GOP, and the the willingness of the Republican Party to just go along with it is is um, the piece. I mean, yeah, a lot of historians would say that I've just been incredibly naive and foolish to believe the story that the Republican Party was trying to tell the American public about who they were, and that I, I that is probably correct. Um, but it, it is just just stunning how quickly these things like America First or all the conspiracy theory stuff, you know, that's been around in American politics forever. Um, but there's never been a president who stood up in front of the television and just mouthed these bizarre or on Twitter, you know, the Uranium One, the Seth Rich, the DNC <laughs> surfer. All of this stuff that has been completely debunked, and any person who's you know paying attention knows that this stuff is wacko conspiracy theory theory stuff. Um, you know that's floated around in American political culture for the entire 20th century, but it's never come out of the mouth of the president of the United States. Um, and had it, I think we would have assumed that the other people in the party would have called that leader to account. And would have made it very clear that, like, look, this is not appropriate what you're doing. You have to stop. Um, but that's not, that's apparently not what's happening. But there have been, in relation to America First that, that you mentioned, there have been, like, attempts to to rethink the, the concept of Americanness. And... And it's it's much more clear in, in 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 the in the right, but but also it's happening in the left. The the kind of developments that are that are happening right now, because with the with the appearance of Bernie Sanders and now Alexander Ocasio Cortez, the the term socialism is, is is much more used. Much more people are identified with the level, and 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 it's not necessarily that clear what people talk when they talk about socialism. Some some people refer to to the uh, to social democracy. Others think that is something much more radical. But even the the American history of, of socialism, if I'm not 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 wrong on, uh, on that. It's very complex because the characters like Eugene Debs and, and Norman Thomas are quite unique to the history of socialism in, in many parts of the world. They they were different than than the than Scandinavian social democrats, and they were not uh, revolutionary Marxists either. Um, yet, it's very complex to 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 create a direct genealogy with, with them and a much more younger socialism. And that is also a, a very complex historical task to, to try to, to understand that, that link. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, one of the headline story of basically what's been happening now, I think we see more clearly is that um, the Republican party starting in 1964 with, Barry Goldwater's elevation to their candidate for president became a party dedicated to radically dismantling the New Deal welfare state, the kind of the New Deal order that emerged out of the Great Depression in America that was built by FDR 
um, and which was a matter of, kind of rough consensus on the part of Democrats and Republicans throughout the 1950s. This is why Goldwater and his supporters hated Eisenhower. This is why the John Birch Society thought Eisenhower was a secret communist. Um, because as they saw it, you can't have just a little bit of socialism. You know, socialism was like sin, as they saw it. You know, you can't just sin a little bit. Um, so if, if you have a little bit of government uh, interference in the market, then, you know, as good readers of someone like Friedrich Hayek or Ayn Rand... They said, well, that's it. It's a slippery slope. You know, pretty soon you're just going to build, you know, if you start regulating water quality, the gulag is just, you know, 10 years down the road. Um, or, you know, in the early 1960s, Ronald Reagan said, you know, boy, if we if we institute Medicare, that's it. You can kiss your freedom goodbye because, you know, pretty soon all freedom will be gone. Um, and so that. You know, and that was rhetoric. That was political rhetoric. They knew it was political rhetoric. Most Democrats said, oh, well, you know, they're doing that. They're being hyperbolic. You know, they don't really want to dismantle the entire, you know, government apparatus. Um, but now it appears <laughs> that they really do and that that has been part of the plan all along. Um with the Supreme Court justices that they've been nominating who come out of a really narrow and radical strain of legal thinking in America that represents, you know, a tiny fraction of lawyers and people who graduate from law school, but who in essence believe that during the New Deal in the 1930s, uh, all of the programs that were put in place broke the Constitution that they were all unconstitutional, that in essence, we are living in an unconstitutional regime right now. And so therefore, in order to be true to what they perceive to be you know, original, true American principles, you have to just get rid of any vestige of what they think is socialism, what to them looks like socialism. Um, and so what's happening, as you point out on the left, is that I think more people are becoming aware of just how radical the Republican Party has become, you know, that we'd always sort of assumed like, oh, you know, protecting worker safety. We can all agree with that, right? Like, you know, having a federal agency that ensures that workers are treated fairly by their bosses, that, for example, there was a, a law that was going to be passed recently that would allow restaurant owners to take the tips that were given to servers in restaurants and claim them as their own, the, the owner of the restaurant. And, you know, Democrats looked at that and said, are you kidding me? That's like stealing money from your workers. And most of the Republican Party was like, yeah, sounds like a good idea. Sounds fine to me. You know, if those servers don't like it, they can go work someplace else. That was their attitude. Um, so... You know, the idea that under Ronald Reagan in the, 90, in the 80s that, some, that, a, that a law like that, a, such a brazen attack on workers would be put forward by the Republican Party was you know, unthinkable in a host of ways. I mean, they were a very anti-union party for a long time, but they wouldn't have gone that far. Um, so I think that the extremities to which the Republican Party is now willing to go um, – has led many on the left to kind of defend more kind of aggressively and forcefully and unapologetically what it is about the American state um, 
that is positive, that is good, that serves the interests of ordinary citizens and curbs the power of people with economic power, um, seeks to bring about protections for people who are part of historically marginalized or oppressed groups, that defends them from the historical forms of injustice um, that they faced over the years, whether those be LGBTQ people, uh, people of color, uh, women, etc. So, um, so yeah, I think that I, part of what's happening is that the left and the Democrats, who since the 90s have been basically running away from the charge that they were really socialists, um, now to, to say, well, look, if that's what you call socialism, then yeah, sure, I'm a socialist. Um, and it's not a revolutionary Marxism. There's very little... You know, the Democratic Socialists of America, which have which have grown dramatically and have been doing all kinds of interesting work, I think they now have a total of 40,000 members, 50,000 members in the U.S., which is tiny, right, which is a very small number. Um, uh, but it's growing, and I think there's a general sense amongst progressives that um, we shouldn't hide or, you know, move away from what it is that one believes in, but just state it unapologetically. And if someone's going to call you a socialist or a communist, fine, you know, who cares? It's just name calling. And that name calling has been very powerful in the American past, especially during the Cold War. That name calling was very powerful. And the Democratic Party from the 1940s on lived in fear of being associated with communism and socialism. And so they hedged on a lot of that. Um, but you know, that the, the continuum, as I see it, the continuum on the left stretches from a kind of moderate democratic neoliberalism towards something that is more like a kind of democratic socialism. And on the right, it goes, it, it ranges from a kind of vaguely socially conservative neoliberalism over to kind of ethno-nationalism into what might be fascism. You know, there are avowed Nazis who have now won uh, primary races for Republican congressional seats. Um, and Republican voters went to the polls and said, oh, that person's a Nazi. Okay, cool, I'll vote for them. Um, that's stunning. You know, and that would never happen in the Democratic Party, you know, needless to say. So um, we'll see. What I mean, there's a real shakeup happening in, in American politics. Um, and I think the energy there on the left side of the spectrum to kind of really explicitly um, embrace the American progressive tradition, whether you call that democratic socialism, um, whether you call it a kind of Keynesian welfare state kind of vision. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a openness to, uh, not running away from that, like Bill Clinton did in the 1990s, uh, like Harry Truman did in the 1940s, um, but instead just uh, owning it and, and, and you know, uh, avowing it. So I think we could leave it here. I think it's been an interesting conversation. And and where do people can can find your your work? I guess a lot of your ideas and the threats you, you make on, on Twitter. <laughs> yes, no, I, I've been, I wasn't much of a 
Twitter user before this election, and for, for whatever reason, I've been moved to uh, try to make sense of what's happening on a daily basis by drawing upon my knowledge and experience of American history. Um, just uh, mostly, I just do it for myself, or my parents, or my friends, <laughs> former students. Uh, who sometimes, you know, uh, ask me, so wait, what do you make of this? What What's going on? Uh, and so I, I don't claim to have any special or sort of unique insight. It's just based upon my 50 years on the earth and spending a lot of time reading books about American history. Um, how do I make sense of the developments that are happening around us? Because it's, it is, um, uh, Joanne Freeman, who, who tweets a lot as well, uh, has said that it, 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 why historians are responding in the way that they are is that for most of us of my generation, we've had this, especially people who've lived in, you know, in relatively privileged subject positions like myself as a white man, um, that we haven't had the sense of living in history, being subject to, you know, you read about these moments like what happened in Nazi, the rise of Nazism in Germany, or the American Revolution, or these other really dramatic moments, the French Revolution, for example, you know, these moments when really massive, world-changing historical developments are happening. And, you know, as historians, we're drawn to those moments, and we're curious about them, and wow, how did this happen? This is a really dramatic, major change. Um, but, you know, I, I was born in 1968, which was a really dramatic, sort of world-changing, epical year. But I came to political consciousness in the 70s. And since the 70s, you know, there's been the fall of the Berlin Wall. But, you know, for someone living as a kind of middle class white American, um, there hasn't been this sense that, like, we are on the verge of some major epical historical break. And now with that election in 2016, that may not be the case, um, but it feels like it very much could be the case. Um, and it's both exciting and uh, I mean, I'm sure the people who support Trump find it to be really exciting and inspirational and hopeful. Um, uh, I find it to be potentially quite dangerous uh, and, and damaging for a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that sense of, you know, living in exciting times, which is not always a great thing. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes it is, um, sometimes it isn't. And so, yeah. Sorry for that long answer, but uh, that, that's that's the best I can do to explain why it is I've been moved to rant on Twitter. And I figure, you know, if people aren't interested, they don't have to read it. They don't have to look at it. Um, but if people are interested for what it's worth, you know, that's my two cents. Well, thanks. This has been a, an interesting conversation. Yeah, nice meeting you. Thanks. Nice talking to you. <laughs>